Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on The Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel, and we toured the tunnels underneath the Western Wall. Remember seeing those huge stones? I mean, one was as big as 520 tons. We also got to see an original path to the Temple Mount that Jesus himself most likely stood on. I mean, wow. We also visited the city of David, and we saw a potential spot for the palace of King David. And, well, we simply can't forget our experience in Hezekiah's tunnel as we splashed through the one-third of a mile-long tunnel that was hand-carved by men thousands of years ago to allow the city of Jerusalem to have fresh water during an impending siege. We also stopped in that trip at the Pool of Siloam and learned about the upper and lower pools, the upper one being excavated in 2005 and now believed to be the authentic Pool of Siloam mentioned in the Bible. Today, we're continuing what I like to call our walking tour of Jerusalem, just because we don't need a bus. When we take a bus, it actually increases the price of the tour quite a bit because buses are big and they need gas. And gas prices in the Middle East have soared, specifically because of tensions between countries there. And so getting gas in Israel is extremely expensive. Therefore, when we can walk, that's awesome. Today, we're going to visit three important sites that are all in the heart of Jerusalem. The tomb of King David, the upper room, and the Temple Institute. That last one, it's going to be the trip of a lifetime. Hopefully, you've had a good breakfast at the hostel and have your supplies, which are that hat. Men, you're going to need your hat today, especially when we go into the tomb of King David, as that's a holy site. Your water bottle, we're in a new climate here. We just got off the plane a little bit ago, a few days ago at this point, and we want to make sure that we have enough water and we're not going to get dehydrated. You also want to have some sunscreen or a sun jacket. We're, we're in the desert here. We're close to the sun. And of course, you want your phone for some pictures. You aren't going to want to, you're going to want to really be able to save some of these memories. And, and maybe you'll even want some snacks. It's also good to have a bag, but I just want to make a note here as we set out today that you should be careful with what you put in more accessible pockets. We're in a large city and, and pickpockets are around. Some areas have more than others and they won't hurt you, but we want to travel safely on the virtual voyage and we also want to keep our wallets, our valuables, our passport with us. And so that's just a quick note. Israel is very safe, but we have to be realistic. So with that caveat in mind, let's go ahead and walk down Jaffa Street. Yes, it's a popular route, but I've had some requests to jump on the light rail. And you know, that does sound fun. We've seen that coming by a few times. We've had, we've had to get out of its way. And we know the walk is short, right? It's, it's 20, 30 minutes maybe to the Western Wall from here. But we're tourists, so we might as well enjoy everything Israel has to offer, including the light rail. I mean, why not? There's a little light rail station right up here up ahead with just two little benches and a little overhanging portico area. So you can just hang out there while I'll go and grab the tickets. And also, I'm going to give you an assignment. Try to decipher when the next light rail will be as according to the digital sign up above us. Alrighty, here we go. I actually didn't get a ticket for myself, and that's because I use my RavCav card here, this little green card with my picture on it. It's a special card you get, and you actually have to go to an office building of sorts in the, on the other side of Jerusalem. And so I load this up with some rides from my app, and I just scan it as I go in. A lot of people do that, especially people here in Israel who maybe use public transportation a lot and don't want to be buying tickets every time. But you all will use tickets because we're just here for a little bit in Israel. 
So you'll just feed that into the machine as we walk on here and, and we're good. All right, here we go, right on the light rail. Nothing much to see that's all that different. It's just the walk down Joppa Street, basically, but at a faster pace. Some people will try and sneak on the light rail without paying. And actually, to prevent this, guards sometimes actually come on the light rail and walk along the train and check people's tickets as they go. Here's a guard coming now. No need to be scared. Just show him your ticket stub. Just like this, and all will be well. Yep, not so hard, is it? The train's LED above us says that the next stop is the Damascus Gate. Now, going through that gate will put us in the Muslim quarter, so we'll just need to get off here and then go over to the Jewish quarter. It will be a, a pretty short walk, so head off here with me now. Okay, so now above us, we're seeing the sign for King David's Tomb, and that is our first stop of the day. So let's pause here outside and talk about uh, King David's Tomb as to not disturb any, any worshipers uh, inside. This site is a holy place for the Jews, and many of them come here to worship and to pray and, and read the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, or some of the books of the law, like the Talmud or the Mishnah. It's interesting to note that in Israel, there are many Jews who, whose vocation, basically, essentially, is just to read the law and study the Bible. And the community will actually support them and their family as they, they pursue that as a vocation. So there are some Jews who will come here, and, and that's really their job, is they will sit at these holy sites and study. Now, you heard me use two terms, Talmud and Mishnah, and you may not know what that is if you don't have a lot of understanding of Hebrew culture and, and, and the Jewish religion as a whole. Well, the Talmud, it's part of the Hebrew collection of sacred books. It's, it's this collection of laws and commentary on the laws that the rabbis have written over the years. See, after the temple was destroyed, the Jews had to work with a new system, right? Because they couldn't uh, perform sacrifices on the Temple Mount. So the rabbis had to hand down new laws or new interpretations of the laws God already gave them to fit this new system. So that's a crash course on the Talmud, but we also have the Mishnah. The Mishnah is part of the Talmud. And basically what the Mishnah is, is this collection of rabbinic discourses. We think about um, maybe Socrates and how Plato essentially wrote down all of Socrates' discourses, right? It's kind of like that, where people would, would collect um, different discourses that the rabbis uh, partook in with each other, and then they put those all into a collection, and that became the Mishnah. So there you have it, Talmud and Mishnah here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. See, many Jews will study those books, and, and like I said, the holy sites are popular places to do so, even if you're not someone who pursues a vocation of, of only studying the law and only studying the Bible. This right here is the traditional site for the tomb of King David, but I want to just make a note before we go in that most archaeologists and historians will tell you that this actually isn't the birth, uh, or this actually isn't the tomb of King David, rather. In 1 Kings 2.10, we read that David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Okay, do you remember last time when we were in the city of David down there with Hezekiah's tunnel? I told you that the city of David can refer to different places. The city of David could mean the location we were at on, on the last time on the virtual voyage, where Hezekiah's tunnel was at and the, the palace potentially was at. Uh, it could mean Jerusalem itself as a city. In Luke 2.4, we also read that the city of David uh, can be called Bethlehem. So we have many different city of Davids, essentially, and we rely on context and more specifics within the text to know what city of David we're talking about. Here, it's not all that clear. I will say it does seem unlikely to have King David buried within the walls of the city of Jerusalem, even if the walls uh, were maybe in a different place back in his time. The Jews really didn't look favorably upon burying someone within the walls or close to the city walls uh, because it's ritually impure 
to do so. Archaeologists have more specific evidence on, on why this isn't the tomb, um, but, but that's beyond the scope of why we're here. I just want you to be able to have that context and understand that while this probably isn't the tomb of King David, it's a still a significant place because so many Jews are coming here and worshiping and praying at this site. It's significant because the Jews believe that the spirit of the holy dead person actually resides at their tomb, so it's very special for them to come here and pray. And they would say that we can always reach out to God but having the chance to do so at a place where, say, the spirit of David is, is residing, that's even better. So I'm going to give you 10 or 15 minutes to go in and have a chance to pray and look around. But, but I just want to note something because I was very confused by this when I first went in. There's this raised structure uh, inside the tomb, and it almost looks like a casket. Well, it's more so of a marker. You have to understand that we're standing on the top layer of Jerusalem, right? There are thousands of years of layers below us. So if David is buried here, he's buried many layers below us. So that's kind of just a marker for us to be able to, to focus around, you could say. And, and one last thing, men will go in on the right, just like at the Western Wall, and men need to have their heads covered at a holy site like this. So men put on your hats, and then women will go to the left. So you can go up to the tomb and pray. Some people put their hands on it, maybe their head to it. Do whatever you're comfortable with, and uh, I'll see you soon. Well, hopefully now you can see why I say that even if it may not be the authentic burial site of King David, it's still a very special place to visit. There's this idea of, of reverential worship when all, when all, when so many people are coming together to worship God and, and coming together to pray to him. It's a very special, a very special situation that we get to partake in. So even if it's not the actual tomb, I still enjoy coming here. Well, we're actually not far uh, from, from our next place. We're literally just going to walk up these steps to the upper room. And, and yes, this is the upper room that's believed or, or said to be the spot where Jesus had his last meal with the disciples, as described in Luke 22, and also where he is said to appear to his disciples at Pentecost in Acts. Most scholars, again, would say that this isn't the actual upper room, and I would tend to agree. You have to understand that the only reason we believe that this building is from Jesus' time is from a man named Epiphanius, who wrote that in the late 300s AD. So we really can only verifiably date this area back and this room back to Jesus' time thanks to Epiphanius. And this room, archaeologists have said, that we're standing in right here is only centuries old. So as a whole, this place doesn't look to be the actual upper room, doesn't look to be necessarily the tomb of King David, even though they are stacked on top of each other like this according, according to what we're believing here. At the very least, maybe it's a helpful visual for you to be able to picture a place like this where Jesus might have broken bread with and then returned to his disciples. It gives us that visual of, of, of the room in the middle and some of the pillars. So I hope that that is helpful in that regard. But now that you've seen both the king of uh, the tomb of King David and the upper room, it's pretty cool, right? They may not be the authentic sites for either, but I have to say I would be a bad tour guide if I left those out, simply saying that archaeology says they aren't authentic. Okay, now here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, we're going to walk just a few steps over here, maybe more than a few, to one of my family's favorite sites, the Temple Institute. You don't know the treat that you are in for. So let's walk in. At first, you may think that this is just a museum. You're looking around, but goodness, don't think that for a minute. They run tours every few minutes. Okay, the sign here has openings for the next one in just a few minutes, so... Let's wait here to go in. 
and go ahead and sit down in some of the chairs that may make you feel like you're in a doctor's office, but oh my goodness, the Temple Mount is anything but. The Temple Institute here is the holding place for all of the items needed for the Third Temple and also the animal sacrificial system that will be reinstated with the return of the Third Temple. We're going to see everything here from the priestly garments to the altar that will be used for sacrifice. Okay, it's our turn to go through the rooms. Let's head on in and I'll show you around. This first room we're in, we have a scaled down model of what the temple would have looked like. You can see that there would have been various routes to get up to the temple because of the various gates. And look, there's also this outer courtyard. This location, this outer courtyard, is the closest that we as Gentiles would be allowed to go to the temple. The Jews could go closer. They could actually approach the temple itself and the priests, at certain points, would have stood outside the temple on these steps we're saying to bless the people. The priests, or the Kohanim, it's, it's a really interesting story in terms of their lineage that we have. Uh, see, many Jews don't actually know what tribe of Israel that they're from today because after the Romans came and, and destroyed the temple, well, all of the, essentially, the genealogies were kept in there, and so a lot of people don't know, after that was destroyed, don't know what tribe they're from. But the Kohanim are different. The Kohanim are our descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, and they're the priests, and they strongly kept up with, uh, with their genealogy and with, with their fathers and, and the generation that they're a part of. So they know that they are Kohanim, while other people might not know if they're from Judah or Benjamin or anything along those lines. We actually have a friend who is a Kohanim, and he owns a jewelry store in the Old City Market. Maybe we'll go and visit him one of these days, who knows? But he's currently owning a jewelry store because he says that until the Third Temple returns, he's not able to fulfill his real role here on Earth, which is, a co which is as a Kohanim, serving the Lord as a priest. So currently, like I said, he's owning a jewelry shop and waiting for the return of the Third Temple. There's also this very sp special place we're seeing inside the temple, which is called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where God's presence literally dwelt, and only the high priest was allowed in the Holy, Hol Holy of Holies one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Okay, so now that we have this visual of the temple, let's move on to the second room. Now, the second room is where all the priestly garments are. There are specific garments the priests had to wear, because as we read in the Mishnah, which we learned is a section of the Talmud, right? It says that while they are clothed in the priestly garments, they are clothed in the priesthood. But when they are not wearing the garments, the priesthood is not upon them. Essentially, the garments that the priests wear are crucial in their service as priests to God. It really completes kind of their, their role. We read, again, like, like I just read, while they're clothed, the priesthood is upon them, and while they're not, the priesthood is not upon them. Oh, I want you to come over here and, and read this sign with me concerning the various garments. There are a lot. We see that there's this tunic, and, and that over here to the right, as you see the, the, the example, is covering most of the priest's body, and that atones for killing. The pants over here as well, they atone for sexual transgressions. The turban, which is worn on the head, that atones for haughtiness. The belt, look at the belt here, that belt is wound about the body, and then it's worn over the heart, and it's atoning for sins of the heart, or what we might call improper thoughts. Now, the breastplate, the breastplate is atoning for errors in judgment, and then the ephod, okay, the ephod's interesting, we'll get to that in a moment, that atones for idolatry. The robe here, look at the robe, mm, quite pretty, that atones for evil speech. And then the high priest's crown, look at that glorious crown, that atones for arrogance. 
So all of these different garments are essentially uh, serving in different ways to atone for the sins of the people. Now, I mentioned something called an ephod earlier, and you may not be exactly sure of what that is. Well, the ephod is a special garment that only the high priest wore. It's just something that he wore over the rest of, of his garments. And, and the breastplate of righteousness went over it. And the breastplate of righteousness, it's made up of 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 beautiful, precious stones that were all related to the different tribes. Something I find quite intriguing concerning, um, concerning these garments is about an ingredient used to make them. It's called the techlet, and it's this beautiful blue color. You can actually see an example of it right over here to the left. Come over here. Yes, perfect. However, when the garments were made in preparation for the third temple right here, for the Temple Institute, there was this problem. No one knew exactly what went into making the techlet, and it wasn't specifically recorded because most likely, presumably, the Jews, when they went into exile, stopped keeping records of, of that, um, and they just lost their tradition. And so no one knew exactly what went into it. Research was performed. Many dyes were made. Most didn't match the color they needed. Finally, finally, they found this sea creature, a Kalazan, and it was in the Mediterranean Sea. And they, they used some of the byproduct of the Kalazan, and they were able to create this mysterious dye. They unlocked the mystery, and they were able to finally get that beautiful blue color that we're seeing right now of the Techelet. So the main takeaway that I want you to have from this room with the garments is that the priests in the third temple will be wearing these garments. The priests in the third temple will be wearing the garments right in front of us right now. And these garments were created with all of the specifications provided in the Torah so that they're in line with what God commanded. Okay, now we're going to move into the third room, which is one of my absolute favorites in the entirety of the Temple Institute because it truly is the room that is the most special, you could say. We talked about the Holy of Holies earlier being the place um, where, where God's presence dwells, right? But we also have to understand that, that as, as fallen men, we have a severed relationship with God. And so part of that, uh, part of what was instituted rather in the Torah, the, what we as, as modern Christians might call the Old Testament, what the Jews would, would refer to as the Tanakh, the Old Testament as, as a whole, right? They don't have the New Testament. Well, they, the Jews essentially are believing in the sacrificial system still because they believe that sins need to be atoned for uh, through animal sacrifice. And so this altar here, standing right in front of us, is what's going to be used for that in the third temple. It could be deassembled and, and reassembled in just six hours. This right in front of us, this kind of three-dimensional right triangle with the ramp right here. Yes, exactly, that altar. So think about it. If the Jews get control of the temple mount on a morning... They will be up there later that afternoon or evening performing sacrifices right here on this ramp where the animal can be sacrificed, the blood can run off, all of that. It's so crazy and it's so cool that we are seeing this. Okay, now on to the last room. And this last room, it contains articles that will go into the Holy of Holies, that, that very holy place where only the priest, high priest goes once a year. So look around. Now, from what you know about the Holy of Holies, from maybe your, your study of, of the Bible, what do you think is missing from this room? Well, it's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant should be in the Holy of Holies. However, since the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, it's been lost. And some people think it may be under the Temple Mount, just hidden. Some people say it's in Egypt. Regardless, the Jews believe that their Messiah will find it and put it inside the Holy of Holies when the Third Temple is built. Okay, also over here, look at this huge curtain. That partitions off the Holy of Holies. You, re you may remember a curtain like this from the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Remember when Jesus died, 
the curtain of the Holy of Holies was split in two. And Christians would say this is signifying the fact that Jesus did away, essentially, with the old sacrificial system because he was the perfect sacrifice and atoned for all sins. The argument would be that the Holy of Holies was no longer only for the high priest, as Jesus made a way for all people to have communion with God, and so there was no need for some partitioned-off place where God's presence dwelt. God inst- God's presence could now dwell, uh, dwell among all men. And so that's more of a disting- distinguishing mark between the religions of Christianity and Judaism, because Christianity obviously um, believes that, that Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice, and Judaism believes that the old sacrificial system is still in place, and that Jesus was not the Messiah, and that the Messiah will come and rebuild the third temple. Okay, so take a final look around, and let's head on out. I mean, what a day. Think about everything we saw. And the Temple Institute, I mean, it does not get better than that. Like, think about this. One day we'll be seeing on the news that the Jews have gotten control of the Temple Mount and are going to be restarting their sacrificial system. And you, you, my friend, have seen the altar they will use. And when you hear about the priests putting on their garments, they were right in front of us. Today's a day where you're going to need to go home and process what we saw. I'd encourage you to grab some tea from the hostel's kitchen and maybe a pastry from one of the bakeries nearby and sit down and reflect. For now, here's the hostel, so I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we head to the Davidson Archaeological Park and stand on some steps that Jesus most definitely stood on. We'll also enjoy a totally new perspective on the city as we climb up and walk around on the walls of Jerusalem. Get excited because that's coming up soon on the virtual voyage.